Welcome to episode 76 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Neil Belfay, partner and senior strategist at Build, a strategic consultancy that helps mid-market companies integrate social and environmental sustainability into core business strategy to bridge the gap between profits and purpose, accelerate performance, and create value. Neil applies his deep expertise in human-centered design principles to help business leaders create and implement sustainable strategies that create more value for more people by doing less harm and more good. He's led companies, managed teams, launched startups, and advised a wide array of clients on how to advance their business objectives in ways that enhance long-term value and performance, while simultaneously improving the health and well-being of people and planet. And speaking of the health and well-being of people and planet, COVID infections are still on the rise many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Neil Belfay, partner and senior strategist at Build, a strategic consultancy. Neil, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you. It's good to be here, Lee. I appreciate you having me. I am excited. We were neighbors. That's how we met. Neighbors and basketball champions together, right? <laughs> champions. Champions in our minds, at least. I think we won one game. <laughs> I'll take that. That's a, that's a champion, right? <laughs> but we didn't even know that we were both involved in climate change mitigation. Not until recently, which is funny. Speaking of climate change mitigation, with regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment that made you feel that you had to join the fight against climate change? Ironically for me, my entry into climate change came through a different door than most. And... I had owned an agency, a branding agency in San Diego for many years. And in, I wanna say it was 2003 or so, we were hired by an organization called World Vision, which is a a huge relief and development organization that focuses on child development. And as part of our work with them, they invited us to go see some of their programs in the developing world in Africa and Central America, a few different places. And that was truly a life-changing moment for me. And I know that term is used frequently and frequently over very trivial things, but I mean that in the most fundamental way. And the reason for that is it totally opened my eyes to what poverty really 
was and how some of the ways that we in the West attempt to intervene in it are often trying to solve the wrong problems. And by that, what I mean is I think we pride ourselves as a nation and as people on being charitable. We want to help others. We're all well-intentioned. But most of the people that I met on these trips, their primary focus was wanting opportunities. They wanted to provide for their families. They didn't want necessarily to be given relief, although some of them were in dire circumstances and obviously needed it and welcomed it. Most people were just very poor, small shareholder farmers, much like our ancestors here in the States or in Europe were a couple hundred years ago, just farming a small plot of land and sustaining themselves on it. Over the course of a couple of years, that experience really stuck with me. And I decided I was going to go start a social enterprise to help build businesses and income opportunities for people in the developing world. And within, I don't know, two weeks of leaving the agency that I was an owner in and going to do that, I met my business partner in the climate change initiative that we ended up launching. His name is Greg Spencer, and he was a partner in an organization called Blue Source that is one of the first and biggest organizations to build around voluntary carbon offsets in the US. And this was, I don't know, 20 years ago before it was even known by most people as a thing that you could buy or sell. He had a huge heart for development and for the developing world. And so as we started talking about what would we do, he said, hey, I, I think we could do projects and build businesses in the developing world that sell clean energy products to very poor families in ways that would reduce the amount of income they're using on things like kerosene, charcoal, open fires, which are extremely bad for the climate and bad for their health. And we could finance that by generating carbon offsets, voluntary carbon offsets that we can sell in Europe and the US. So we built a whole business model to go and do that. And it was a 10 year ultra steep learning curve on climate change, carbon offsets, the financial markets around that, the causes of that, and everything related to that. So you can't spend that long in it and not become very committed and passionate about it. Why is climate change mitigation personal for you? I think for related reasons. If you've worked in the sector or you're just passionate about climate change, you have very likely educated yourself to the degree that you're understanding the impacts that it's having on us in the developed world, on our children, what we're leaving for next generations or not leaving. I also had a really strong added component in that I had stood in extremely remote places in different areas of the world, speaking with communities and people in small villages whose only source of sustenance was farming and hearing them talk specifically about changing weather patterns that had been the same for generations. They had seasons of planting and harvesting and rains that they could count on that were so consistent that from generation to generation, they had these patterns developed that they were seeing change. 
they didn't have the education or the knowledge about climate change and, and some of the science behind it. They just knew, hey, more of my crops are failing. Rains are coming at a different time. There's too much rain. There's not enough. It was deeply affecting their ability to survive and to feed their children. And so for me, it is a very personal human issue because of that. That was very moving and must have really played with your heart quite a bit. Oh, very much so. Yeah. It's hard not for it to do so because I think on the one hand, you're standing there and we come from a country that historically has not taken action on climate change from a political standpoint. The political will has not been there to do it in a meaningful way. And knowing that we are one of the biggest contributors, that there's this political lobbying and gaming going on between countries like the US and China and India, and these people without direct awareness of that are suffering the consequences. You know, the poor are on the front lines of the most immediate damages from climate change, whereas we are at least partially insulated from it by our wealth. For now. For now, yes. When you meet people that haven't shared the experiences that you've had, that don't believe there is climate change or don't believe the data, how do you convince them otherwise? I don't know that I always do. <laughs> I can tell you how I try to tell that story. I mean, I, I think maybe for me it is a benefit that I have had those kinds of experiences because I can tell the story from a human point of view and from a point of view of people who are not sharing their experiences with changing weather and droughts and disasters because of a political motivation. They don't have access to that kind of news, to that kind of information. And so I think I'm able to approach it with people from a perspective of, hey, this is very real and this is happening it softens the conversation or it softens the entry to the conversation. And then I, I think as we get deeper into it, I guess just having thought about this over the years, the analogy that I tend to offer just to get people to think about it is we're arguing over, is the data accurate? Do all scientists agree, et cetera. Now the numbers on that are overwhelming, but depending on where you get your news, some people will refute that. And so with those people, I'll say, Hey, Think about why we buy insurance, right? We pay money for insurance for things that we think could or might happen because it's a sensible thing to do. If somebody lobs a grenade into the room, you're probably not going to stand around and argue about whether you think it's a real grenade. Somebody's going to rapidly move to it and throw it out the window or you're going to run for your lives. What we are arguing about is a grenade and let's make the assumption that we can't tell for sure whether it's live or not. We think we can, but let's say you're somebody who believes we can't. Why not ensure our lives and our livelihoods against that grenade going off? It doesn't make sense. You've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about Build and what you do at Build? I had two pretty distinct seasons career-wise in my life. And the first one of those was building a, like I said, a branding and a strategic agency that was really more focused on working with Fortune 500 brands to help them build products and brands and take them to market. And so we did a lot of literally design and brand oriented work, storytelling, and some strategic work behind that. And then that transitioned to a career working in 
Africa and Central America and a little bit Asia, just building these last mile distribution networks and selling financing off in these very inexpensive green energy products and working with really amazing local people, local employees to make that happen and to build it from scratch and to deal with all the red tape and the problems in the developing world. And so when I look at build, I think of build as a culmination or a jambalaya, if you will, of those two things mixed together. It is a consultancy that is designed to help companies create sustainable value in the environmental, the social, and the governance spaces in ways that advances their business, makes them more profitable, makes them higher performing, but in a way that is reducing their environmental impacts and perhaps even at some point generating more that they're giving back than they're taking out of the environment. And the same thing socially, learning how to engage employees, communities, and make the business about more than just generating a dollar, making it about solving problems for people and planet in a profitable way. You mentioned your first two careers as seasons. If those were both seasons, what do you call this? Is this a third season or something different? The third act, I guess. Yes, this is the third (laughs) season. So hopefully it'll be an equally long season. The last two are both 12 to 15 years in length. And I think I'll probably work at least that long, depending on God willing, if my health holds out. Yeah, I think this is sort of the third season or the third act, just trying to, if you think about it, those are really kind of radically different things in many ways. Although there were a lot of skills that overlapped heavily. And when I went into building this social business, which was called the Paradigm Project, I was surprised at how much of what I learned in that first season at the agency really benefited our work in the social enterprise. So I'm hoping to see the same thing here. There's just those experiences and the richness of what I got to do just feeds this. Almost everybody I talk to, their life experiences, even though they didn't know what they were going to do with those experiences, ended up taking yeah. them to where they are and where they are is a wonderful place. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool how that works. How has the pandemic changed your perspective of what you need to do or what you do? Good question. Because I think it is heavily impacted. There are very few businesses that hasn't. Some of them, and this is the minority, the pandemics made them very wealthy and very powerful. And most are just we're trying to adjust to the new norm. For us, backing up one step from that question, I've been doing this work with my business partner for about two years but we just formally launched the business in March, which as you can imagine, is like the worst timing on earth. And ironically, when I launched the Paradigm Project, that was in the beginning of 2008. So I seem to either be good at timing these things or I'm causing some of these things. Uh, One way or the other, I, I need to find a new way to do this. But I think for us, it definitely impacted it. Right before we launched, we were looking at a world where The business roundtable had just made a public statement about the purpose of a business that was shifting it away from a profits only or a shareholder primacy perspective and moving it towards a stakeholder perspective. And one of those stakeholders being the planet and the environment. And so I think this has been happening for about 10 years, but it seems to be gaining some speed or some traction or at least some greater level of awareness. And so we were 
working in an environment where there was at least the beginning acceptance of the idea that businesses were going to move to this more stakeholder focused view of the world, sustainable value being the goal, profits being a key part of that, but not the sole objective. And I think the pandemic, it didn't turn that upside down, but it sure for many people, it hit a hard pause at the beginning because I think there was a scramble to find resilience, to find revenue just to survive for many businesses, which quickly kind of morphed into an opportunity to showcase how working in sustainable ways could actually help generate more or better profits. It allowed us to have many conversations with businesses that were about, hey, when you're focused on profits on a quarterly basis, something like the pandemic can blow you up. When you're focused on profits as part of a mix with profits, people, and planet over a long term, and you're building resilience and systems around that, then things like a pandemic, while they're still traumatic, they're not life and death in the terms of the next few months from a business perspective. Recently, I interviewed Jason Rodriguez, and we came up with the concept, it's a common concept, but the concept of a balanced scorecard, but for countries, for nations, for the world. So instead of chasing the dollar, along with profits, nations should strive to maximize people and planet as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an awesome idea. Well, you just said it too with regard to companies. Yes. I stole the people and planet part from you. When you really break it down, it's a common sense philosophy. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that the majority of business owners or leaders or country leaders would say that's what you should be doing, especially if you look back 10 years or so, but more so that when you really break it down, it does not make sense to operate a country or a business in a way that is using resources unsustainably because that is an inherent macro threat to the survival of that business. It's very hard for people to look macro. It is. We have built a financial system and a structure that is really based on much shorter cycles of profit making in a more micro fashion. So most CEOs, if you look at their tenure, if you look at what they're measured on, if you look at what they have to deal with from investors and from their boards, they are taught and rewarded around quarterly earnings reports. And cumulatively over many years, there's a place for that that makes sense. But if you're just working from one quarter to the next, and what you're judged on is what does that last dollar amount look like, then you are going to be highly motivated to make decisions that are ignoring some of those value points, those other forms of capital, people, nature, that are inherent parts of your business, but are not counted as such. You said quarter to quarter. My experience is that with some CEOs of some larger companies, it's moment to moment. It's decision to decision. <laughs> Every decision is around what will maximize our financial value versus any other way of measuring benefit. That is very true. And I think depending on how you came up, 
through whatever corporate system you came up through, what your experience was getting there, what you were taught to value. And honestly, for many years, we've been taking this concept that I think was originally put forward by Milton Friedman of shareholder primacy, the concept of the only purpose of a corporation should be to make money for its shareholders. And there is a truth to that. There's a wisdom behind that. It's well-intentioned, which is to say, these are the owners of the company. If you're working for somebody else or for some other purpose, you're kind of missing that. But it has been so myopic in the way that we have executed it, that it has become profits at any cost and the ends justify the means. And what I think businesses are learning is that when you look at any time period beyond a quarter, that's a recipe for disaster. I think if my daughter were here, she would say that, yes, it's nice that some companies are doing the right thing but that it's really nations and government that are supposed to put the brakes on as companies strive for profits. Yes, I think that's true. It even disturbs her that we are relying on companies <laughs> to change their perspective away from profits because the governments aren't. Yeah, and it should because the majority of companies were brought up in that system where their purpose they were told, is only to make profits for the shareholders. And so relying on a group of individuals, ultimately the leaders of those companies, who honestly believe that that is their fiduciary duty, that they are doing the right and legal thing by doing that, it leaves a lot to be desired in many ways to think about that as our primary vehicle to achieve these end goals related to climate, the environment in general, biodiversity, all these critical things. However, I think we're seeing the dysfunction of political systems, not just here, but globally. I think it has surpassed the dysfunction of the corporate systems in so many ways that people are like, I'll actually trust these guys. They want my money over the politicians. And so I agree with that. I don't know what our alternative is. In this country, the Constitution says we can hold our politicians responsible for what they do. And that is true around our voting cycles to a degree. But we are a very polarized country. And so that doesn't always work well that way. And number two, I think the systems that we have in place to do that from a political perspective, I believe they're not designed to efficiently create outcomes. They're designed for representation. And so as you know, they're very slow and they just don't get things done. Going back to the discussion between government and corporations, there have been times in my career when I've been responsible for people change management during times of change within the company. And I found that working both from the top and from the bottom mm. to accept the change was much more successful than thinking the top could just push change down. That's absolutely true. Or the bottom, just from grassroots, could make change happen. So to me, we really do need corporations. That's, in essence, the bottom. And we really do need government. And that, in essence, is the top. And really, the people that work at those companies are the bottom. I don't want to say that in a bad way. Yeah, But if they say we demand this from the companies and you can't hire us unless you have this perspective, that goes a long way 
to then maybe trying to maximize profits, but not being able to do it unless they respect the needs of the people working there. Yeah, I think what you're describing, Lee, is really important. As consumers, we have a very immediate and direct lever to control the responses and the behaviors of corporations if we choose to unite to push that lever. That lever with government is way more slow moving. We can vote, but that's on long-term time cycles and it doesn't always reflect the collective will. The idea of a collective will is somewhat an anomaly these days. So with corporations, and ironically, the faster growing they are and the more successful they are, in many ways, the more power we have with them, because if we stop that flow of dollars, it does a huge amount of damage to that momentum and that success. So it's a double-edged sword, but I feel like we do have an advantage with corporations that we don't have with governments. If we're smart about pressing those buttons and creating those expectations, to your point, customers and employees, and we have a whole generation, millennials and Gen Z who are coming into the workforce who have very different expectations and top-notch employers want top-notch talent. And if that talent is going to say, I'm not working for you if you're going to use a supply chain that's using child labor, I'm not working for you if you're going to be putting waste back into our water system, that is going to change their behavior. And they are saying that. They are, to their credit. You talked a little bit about your struggles starting companies at the worst times to start them. Yeah. Can you talk about other setbacks on your journey? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can write a book about that. I think the probably the most compelling or the most instructive ones that I can offer are in my transition from the agency that I first started, which is Bulldog Drummond with a really talented partner by the name of Sean Parr, who still runs it to this day. That business was in Southern California, worked with Fortune 500 companies. We did a lot of great work. We did some really amazing things. And I learned a lot about how to operate a business. I learned a lot about how to build good products, how to market them, how to start things and make them successful. And so when I transitioned to the Paradigm Project and I launched that in the developing world, I had no idea how naive I was. I mean, by this point, I had a solid 15 years of business experience. I guess I walked into it with a bit of an arrogance, not so much in my attitude. Like I didn't realize I was arrogant, but I walked into it thinking business is business and I know how to build businesses and I want to do this to help these people. I'll go do this. I'll build businesses in the developing world. It was like landing on another planet in terms of what you needed to be successful in many of these countries and cultures. People had totally different attitudes about money. People had totally different attitudes about business, about work ethics, about everything that you can imagine. And so we spent many years trying to dial in our business model and we worked in five or six different countries and each one was totally different. And many of these countries, many people don't know this, but Uganda, for example, I think there's 53 different languages spoken there, tribal languages. 
each of those is a tribe that represents a microculture that thinks about the world a little bit differently than their neighboring tribe. I was almost starting from scratch in terms of learning what business was, what made it successful. And so it made for a really long road and it generated in me, I think a real humility around understanding how much I didn't know. And then combine that with, we started in 2008 at the beginning of a huge downturn, the housing market collapsed, there was a major recession and a big portion of our business model was built on the sale of carbon offsets, which when we entered the year in 2008, we're trading in Europe somewhere around $24 a ton. And by our fourth or fifth year in, they were trading at 60 cents a ton. And so we also had to completely re-engineer our business model. So I think it maybe more than anything just taught me perseverance and humility to really approach things from a perspective that I might have some experience that crosses over and that I can bring to the table, but I darn well better sidle up to some people who know the markets, who know the culture, and who are really going to be the strength of the day-to-day. Did you overcome? I would say we did, yeah. We have since sold the assets in those businesses to the local teams that we were once managing. And so in that respect, it was a huge success. I think if you were to go back and interview the people that worked with us over that decade plus, we learned a ton from them. And I think they would tell you they learned a lot from us and the way that the West does and thinks about business. And I think from that probably grew in good ways and we're able to bring some of that into future roles. Did we succeed from a purely financial growth? Are we the next Google in Africa? No, we did not. These organizations are small, locally run, employ 30 or 40 people. They do important work. They're growing at a reasonable pace. But I think when we went into it, our mindset was more, hey, we want to achieve significant scale because what we're looking to do is impact the lives of people, some of whom are the poorest of the poor in this world. You know, when we look at our metrics, we impacted the lives of about a million families in the time that I was there. So that to me is significant. So I guess the answer to the question depends on how you define that success. For me, I do consider it a success on multiple levels. I think we decided people planet profits. So if the profits weren't as much as you wanted, but the people were a million for clean energy solutions, I'd say you did pretty well. I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of that work. Yeah. So we hit on that success. I would call it a success. What is the success you're most proud of? Well, I think outside of the personal, because I've got three boys and with my wife, just having raised three young men, the youngest of which is still in high school, but three young men who they're just so much better than I was at that age in every way. I just look at them and I'm like, I was an idiot when I was 20 or 24. My daughters are way better than me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll set that aside and just, and you know, I got to give more credit to mom than to me on that. My wife did far more of the heavy lifting there because of the way we decided to run our family. So from a professional standpoint, I, I think my greatest accomplishment is probably, you know, what I just described to you, that paradigm project work. 
it's not by any means, like we were saying, my greatest accomplishment financially. And I think where we're going with build, I really hope that what we are able to accomplish is that we're able to reach and work with and teach businesses that are moving the levers in our lives, in our economies from day to day, how to operate in a truly sustainable way and sustainable meaning not just environmental, but in all ways, because I think that has exponential potential to it. But to date, I'll always cherish the idea of being able to go into the countries that we were working, go out, I mean, literally drive sometimes nine hours on dirt roads to reach some of the communities that we're selling to, talk to those people, usually through translators, just visit with them. The hospitality that they exhibited, despite having very little to their name, always amazed me. Just the way that they were so welcoming and warm. And the fact that for those families, we would sell, let's say a solar lantern. For a family, a $25 solar lantern would replace the use of kerosene in the house, which is a really negative toxin from a air quality standpoint and is costing them might be $4 a month, something like that, when they're making maybe 30. And we're able to replace that, finance it for an amount of money that equals or is less than what they were spending on the kerosene. And after six months, they own that and they're able to charge it with the sun and utilize it for light. That's affecting how their kids can study after it gets dark. That might be safety for a woman who's having to go outside to use the restroom. It's those little things to me. When I look at those, I feel really good about the work we were doing there and what Paradigm stood for. So I feel like that business model, that business and what we did there to me is probably my biggest accomplishment because of what it represented in people's lives. People, planet, big time contribution right there. What is your vision for the future? How do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years from now with regards to climate change? It's up to us, right? How are we going to respond to that? And so I'll tell you, my hope is that we have begun to reach a tipping point of understanding that in countries like the U.S., which is, has been historically pivotal in that if the U.S. is in some other countries that are going to be important to the game can be influenced to be in as well, if they're not already. Europe's obviously way ahead of us in this regard, but if we are at that point and we actually begin to act, it's still going to get worse before it gets better, but we may be able to stave off absolute destruction and, and head this thing back in the right direction. I'm hopeful that there are technologies that are being developed that could extract carbon from the atmosphere, but by no means should we be relying on that. I fear that where we're going to be is that we in the developed world, we have some financial insulation from the worst effects of this. Not entirely. You know, when Houston floods or a hurricane hits Southern Florida, it doesn't matter how much money you have, things are going to be destroyed. And unfortunately, I suspect that it's going to take that at a pretty biblical scale to really get us to a point where we say we have got to shift gears. I hope it doesn't, but when I look around and I hear what some of our 
leaders are saying and what many of the people who support them are saying, I fear that we still don't quite understand what we're dealing with. How do you think the pandemic has affected your vision? It has definitely affected it. Like I think it has everybody's. My hope is that when people look at this pandemic, they sort of see an accelerated version of what climate change is on a micro scale and that they can make that leap to say, if this was what climate change is on a much more destructive scale over decades instead of months, then let's do something to fix that because we do not want the outcomes that we just saw. The pandemic was a very fast moving global event that required all of us to get on the same or a very similar page in terms of what we're gonna allow, what we're gonna limit and how to shut this thing down. And we didn't fully get there, but you saw a lot of countries make the right decisions, do the right things and the outcomes were not great, but they were better than they were here or in places like Brazil. So my hope is that people are seeing that and kind of able to use that as an analogy and an example of what we have in climate change at a much bigger, much more destructive scale and say, we need to be prepared for this. We need to understand it. We need to take actions to make sure that we are heading in another direction. I think it's opened some eyes or maybe created some awareness for some people. And I think that the results of how quickly the planet responded when suddenly we were all forced indoors for a month and like canals cleared up and air quality was measurably different. I mean, that's a massive statement about the impact we're having. If you didn't believe that this was man-made before, I don't know what other evidence you need. That's very tangible evidence of the impact we're having on the planet from day to day. What advice do you have? What one action could people do to mitigate climate change or to help? I guess I would say two things because I can't limit it to one. So one is, I think with something like climate change, it's pretty easy to think on a group scale. It's the tragedy of the commons. So we can all to a degree look at it and go, yeah, we need to fix that problem over there and get that taken care of. And instead ask people to look at their own lives, their own purchase decisions, their own choices from day to day and realize that ultimately comes back again to people, right? We are the source of the problem in every decision we make. So analyze that and think about it and do what you can do to make the changes you need to make. And then the second thing I think would be don't leave it for someone else to think about, talk about, and do make it a topic of conversation with your kids, make it a topic of conversation with your neighbors. It doesn't have to be confrontational. I mean, I think there is an inherent political element to it because we've turned it into that, but talk about it from a human standpoint. Do we want to live in a place like Arizona or Nevada where the temperatures might be five or 10 degrees hotter on average? Probably not. There's a lot of people who live in places like that. So bake it into the conversation because I think there are many people who are sort of of the mindset like, well, I don't know how many people really care about that. I know there are these avid, rabid activists who care about that, but I don't know if the average person cares about that. The more that we realize our neighbors not only care, but want to and are doing something about it, I think the more that empowers us to sort of say, yeah, maybe I should do that too. Is there anything else that you want to say? 
it's a little bit of preaching to the choir, right? These are people who are engaged in the issue. But I would say don't tire of the work that we're doing, even when it looks like we can't get there because this is the front line. Like we're holding that line and we can't afford to get tired or to give up. And so I think, you know, whatever it takes, extra cup of coffee in the morning, go back to the well, re-energize. You're going to have those days, but just know, I think there's more of us out there. And with this next generation, more who are ready to take up those reins than it feels like there is on certain days. So just an encouragement. You may be one person, but you're needed because the fight is so vital. And at least go down fighting. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. You were in Africa when you made a life-changing decision. You saw the poverty working with world vision. There was a time when carbon offset knowledge was less denser, but you depended on that market with your partner, Greg Spencer. In Africa, the climate was changing. It was alarming. It was harming, and it impacted small villages that need predictive weather for farming. Most people don't have your world experiences. So about climate change, they might not worry. So you humanize it with with your point of view by telling your story. If you want the earth to have the endurance, remove that grenade. Hey, it's just insurance. When I asked you about how you got here, you talked about two seasons for your career and the origin for build at least one reason. You put it all together for a third act, a third season. Your business, the pandemic outbreak is when you began it to help drive benefits to people, profit and planet. Yes, it's true. Neil, you have the unction to compare the levels of government to corporate dysfunction. You had years of business experience, so you couldn't believe that in the developing world, you were so naive, the different languages and views. It made you Wanda. There were 53 languages just in Uganda. You've got a lot to be proud of. You've got so many joys to top the list, a wonderful wife and three great boys. If you want to save the world, if you want to save the nation, you've got to bring up climate change in every conversation. We're getting more fires. There's floodwaters to bail. Motivation may require weather events of a biblical scale. Wow, Lee. Impressive. And, and bonus points for incorporating the word unction. for the most compelling analogy to date on why to take action against climate change and worth paraphrasing. If somebody lobs a grenade into the room, you're probably not going to stand around and argue about whether you think it's a real grenade. Somebody's going to throw it out the window or you're going to run for your lives. Well, in this case, there's nowhere to run. While we debate about the grenade in our living room, time is being wasted even if we're not 100% sure, for many, probability one is difficult to achieve. There's significant evidence it's a live grenade. And even if it's not, why wouldn't we ensure our lives and take action? If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, 
please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And repeating Neil one more time, don't tire of the work we're doing, even when it looks like we can't get there, because this is the front line. We're holding that line, and we can't afford to get tired or to give up. There's more of us out there, and with this next generation, more who are ready to take up those reins. You may be one person, but you're needed because the fight is so vital. The fight to mitigate climate change. <laughs> <laughs>